0: When John Harvey arrived in Virginia, he seemed genuinely optimistic about what he'd find there. He knew the colony pretty well. He'd transported people there, owned land there, and in fact had brought the first peaches to the colony. He knew Samuel Matthews and other leading citizens from his time on King James's commission, and he was on pretty good terms with them. The colony had problems but he'd seen what it was capable of, and with the king's backing and the colonists' cooperation, he could solidify Virginia's well-being for decades to come. But life is never that simple. Before he'd even left for England, the seeds of discord were planted, and within a year, his outlook would be completely different. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. But before we get into that, it's time to introduce our ill-fated governor. He was an old sea captain who had done a little bit of everything. He'd helped organize England's coastal defense at the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War, and he'd also helped patrol the English Channel at the same time. He'd acted as a privateer in the Caribbean for a while, and he'd helped transport colonists to the New World. Harvey was, by most accounts, both a thoroughly decent person and someone with an atrocious temper. Back in the day of King James's commission, a spat between Harvey and his hired crew had ended in them threatening mutiny and him threatening to slit their throats. Then while in Virginia, he'd gotten into a fight with a man named William Much, and he'd punched Much during the altercation. Now, a volatile temper and the outlook of a ship's captain actually fit together to a certain extent. As a ship's captain, Harvey was used to total one-person authority with serious penalties for disobedience or breaking the rules. A gruff manner was, to a certain extent, part of the job, even in people like George Summers who were naturally mild-mannered and accommodating. Do what I say, because I said so, now, or suffer the consequences." But what worked on a 17th century ship doesn't often work in politics, especially at a time in history when England was particularly sensitive to issues of one-person governance and when arbitrary rule, meaning authoritarianism, was a political buzzword. Harvey wasn't in charge in Virginia. In fact, he was in a weaker position than the colony's other leaders. He didn't have as much money, he wasn't an established political leader, and he was viewed with inherent suspicion because he was the king's personal representative at a time when there was some suspicion about the king himself. Pretty much everything in Virginia had to go through a vote, either of the council or the unicameral general assembly which was dominated by the council. Furthermore, Harvey was tasked with running the colony's day-to-day affairs and diplomacy, while people like Matthews could spend the vast majority of their time on their own private affairs. Harvey had veto power, but that was pretty much it. He had been sent to Virginia to play the game of politics on the King's behalf. Harvey had a reasonable range of skills. But that wasn't one of them, and what's more, it's not what he expected his job to be. As soon as he could, Harvey called a meeting of the General Assembly. Since he left Virginia, the colony's economic situation had deteriorated. The price of tobacco had dropped to less than a penny per pound, compared to the 38 pence a pound it had sold for less than a decade before. Plus, the merchants had started to make the colonists pay the cost of shipping themselves, which came out to an additional 12 pounds per small shipment. And the merchants could get away with this, because the Virginia colonists were wholly reliant on trade with English merchants for any income at all. And English merchants formed a small Tight knit community who acted as a unified group in their transactions with the colonists, so the colonists couldn't benefit from any sort of competition. The merchants could sell tobacco at a high price in England while spending virtually nothing for it in Virginia. The price of tobacco was unlivably low. But colonists still had to buy basic necessities and tools from England, tools which they used, among other things, to work the land. And for these purchases, they again depended on the same group of merchants who could charge high prices for even the most basic of commodities. One colonist complained that the merchants had stored large quantities of servants' shoes, but he sold them at a price that the colonists couldn't afford. A couple years later, Harvey quantified the price of shoes in a letter to England, saying that the merchants demanded 50 to 60 pounds weight of tobacco per pair of shoes, and I think that dissecting this is a good way to illustrate the price dynamic in Virginia. Harvey's statement came at a time when the colonists were demanding sixpence per pound of tobacco So one pair of shoes cost the colonists one and a half pounds. It's hard to find out exactly how much they sold tobacco for in England, and the prices did fluctuate wildly, but a low average, I found, was about four shillings per pound of tobacco. And at that rate, the same tobacco would be sold for 12 pounds in England. It's impossible to come up with a straightforward inflation rate and conversion of 1630s pounds to modern dollars. And that's one reason that I keep going back to the same old figure. 40 pounds was the average annual income of a non-gentry landowner at this time period. And in that context, we can see just how much one and a half pounds was to spend for a pair of shoes. And for the merchants, the profit for one pair of shoes was over a quarter of the annual income of a non-gentry landowner. This was a situation which had been getting increasingly dire over the past couple of years, and there wasn't anything that the colonists could really do to oppose it. To adjust, they simply grew even more tobacco than previously, prioritizing it over corn and depending on whatever corn they could get from trade with the Indians. They couldn't get enough from trade to sustain themselves, so they were starting to suffer from a lack of food. Harvey was definitely on the side of economic diversification, and in fact he really didn't like tobacco any more than Kings James or Charles did. But even for tobacco's most emphatic supporters, there was no denying that this was an unacceptable situation. At the assembly, it seemed that Harvey and the others were on the same page. There were clear-cut problems to deal with, The assembly agreed that it was important to reduce the amount of tobacco planted and to increase the amount of corn. Harvey arranged to send ships around the Chesapeake and southward to Cape Fear to trade for corn, and the assembly agreed to build a fort at Point Comfort large enough to mount 12 to 16 cannons. They put Matthews in charge of the project because he was still someone who both Harvey, and the rest of the assembly trusted. They also agreed to pursue other industries, specifically potash, rapeseed, and the salvage of nitrates from chamber pots. None of this was codified exactly, but the assembly all seemed to be on the same page about the colony's needs and how best to address them. Shortly after the assembly, though, Harvey did the first of many unpopular things that he'd do as Governor when he brought Dr. John Pott, the acting governor he'd replaced, to trial. This was something that the King had actually requested. While Governor, Pott had refused William Caps' permission to return to England, knowing that Caps was the King's agent. The king had ordered him to return to England to report on the colony's situation, as well as the progress that he'd made encouraging other industries. But when Caps had asked Pot for permission to obey those orders and return to England, Pot and the council had refused. Then, when Caps escaped and returned to England anyway, they launched an investigation into the people who had helped him. Sadly, like so many early American stories, this one is woefully underdocumented and that's pretty much all we know about it. So your guess as to why the council acted this way is as good as mine. But when Caps got to England, he told his side of the story to the Privy Council and the king sent orders to Harvey to investigate whether or not the colony had followed the orders he'd sent with Caps. And to punish anyone involved in the oppressions that Caps complained about. The king said that if a council member had been involved, Harvey should punish him particularly aggressively. So when Harvey got to Virginia and started investigating, he inevitably found out that Potts had been involved. And as he investigated and as he investigated the Caps incident, Harvey heard multiple other severe complaints about Potts' behavior, both as a doctor and as a political leader. One man said that he had pardoned a willful murder, and another man said that his charge of murder had been unjust. They felt that he played judicial favorites. People said he'd marked other men's cattle for his own and killed every hog which had wandered onto his land for his own personal gain, with no attempt to return it to its rightful owner. So Harvey arraigned Pot on three felony charges, pardoning willful murder, branding other men's cattle for his own, and stealing cattle and hogs. He confined him to his plantation while awaiting trial, But Pott disregarded his orders and went to Charles City. So Harvey put him in jail, but he ultimately yielded to public pressure and allowed him to return home under bond. Pott refused to return home if a bond was involved, so he remained in jail until the trial, and at the trial, a jury of 13 men found him guilty. As punishment, Harvey ordered Potts' estate be confiscated and Pot be imprisoned, but he delayed the sentence and wrote to England asking that the king pardon the former doctor because he was the only physician in Virginia who was acquainted with the common local diseases. He did remove Potts from the council, though. Harvey also returned the estate of a man that Pot had convicted of murder. Harvey's behavior seems pretty reasonable, but there was a strong backlash in Virginia at the time, for a number of reasons, not least of which was that Pot was jolly and popular with wide swaths of the population, compared to Harvey, who was volatile and regarded with skepticism. Pot had also been the person who had testified about Harvey's violent argument with Much a few years before, so people suspected that Harvey was getting revenge, and they also felt that Harvey was trying to demonstrate the weight of his authority. And when Pott was pardoned by the Privy Council, Harvey wasn't the one who got credit. It was Pott's political allies. Nothing dramatic happened regarding this event, but the event did start to push a wedge between Harvey and quite a few other colonists. As for an update on the progress on commodities, Harvey wrote a letter to the Privy Council suggesting that they ask Francis West, William Claiborne, and William Tucker for information. West, Claiborne, and Tucker were already in England, trying to prevent Lord Baltimore from getting a patent for a colony within Virginia's borders, and Claiborne was establishing his trading patent with Cloverine Company. So, suddenly, within just a couple of months, the seeds of a lot of conflict had been planted, and things weren't getting better. By October, Harvey wrote a letter to the king, giving him some updates and urging him for the first, but by no means the last, time to pay his salary. Harvey explained that so far he had paid all expenses himself, and he was starting to go into debt to pay those expenses, even though he spent all of his time serving the king and colony. He needed money now, please and thank you. To this point, Harvey had had a good relationship with Matthews, even writing the king, encouraging him to give Matthews special privileges in exchange for his service to the colony and governor. But that wouldn't last either. In fall, Harvey sent an exploratory expedition up the James River Valley to find a silver mine rumored to have been found by one of the Germans way back in Gates's administration, and he put Matthews in charge of the expedition. Matthews got a late start, and the enterprise completely failed. While Matthews' allies used this as evidence that exploring other commodities was a waste of time and money, at least one of Harvey's friends blamed Matthews himself for the failure, the first hints of a rift. And Harvey's temper wasn't doing him any favors, either. After one council meeting, Harvey took offense at Richard Stevens' insolent language and knocked out several of his teeth with the cudgel. When questioned, he readily acknowledged that he'd done it, but emphasized that the altercation hadn't occurred during a council meeting. In January of 1631, the Privy Council ordered Harvey to limit tobacco planting and encourage cultivation of other crops food, potash, and iron ore. The previous assembly hadn't passed any tangible measures to achieve these aims, just stated their resolve to work toward them. Harvey replied to the king that he hated tobacco and he wished that it could be completely expelled from Virginia, but he said that the colony was dealing with a catch-22 on the issue. Harvey didn't have the power to make the colonists pursue the other commodities. Only an order from the king and council could push the colonists to seriously pursue other industries. But if the king did that before other commodities were developed, serious restrictions on tobacco would destroy the colony. Harvey also voiced his criticisms of the merchants, who had formed a monopoly against the colonists. And in the spirit of those criticisms, Harvey started to encourage trade with other colonies in New England, Nova Scotia the West Indies, and with the Dutch at New Netherland. Nathaniel Bass was the first person authorized to go trade with other colonies, and Harvey specifically instructed Bass to encourage people from other colonies to come to Virginia Specifically encouraging New Englanders to come to the Delaware Bay, saying that Virginia would help them. This idea actually wasn't well received. English merchants didn't want competition, and the merchants had a disproportionate amount of policy influence because they were the ones who informed people in England about what was going on. The king also didn't want valuable commodities going to the Dutch rather than to him. Perhaps more surprisingly, though, Matthews and his allies opposed Harvey's plan. They had a good relationship with the English merchants, and that had given them lucrative central positions in the export of tobacco from Virginia to England. In fact, Their merchant relationship was so strong that they were some of the few people in Virginia who really wouldn't have minded seeing the Virginia company reconstituted in some manner. The only people who supported Harvey's opening of trade were people with no real political influence, who quite rightly thought that they might get higher tobacco prices from the Dutch. With the policy implemented, though, William Claiborne rushed to take advantage of it, procuring a license to trade with colonies all along the North American coastline. And by April, the relationship between Harvey and his council had completely fallen apart. Harvey wrote to the king asking again for his salary and asking the king to strengthen his authority within the colony. He said the council opposed him and disputed his authority at every turn. And in contrast to his earlier statements, he said that Matthew's was the worst one. All he could do was cast a simple vote in favor of the policies that the king supported. He had absolutely no power, and they cared about their own well being rather than the general good, or doing what was right. They hindered his attempts to administer equal justice, and he was powerless to oppose them on anything. In fact, he said pretty much all he did was entertain people who came to Jamestown at his own expense, so he should be called the host of Virginia, rather than the governor." Evidently, the councillors also wrote letters to the Privy Council, complaining that Harvey insisted that his commission should give him full authority to govern in the king's name, and that he was a source of arbitrary rule. The Privy Council warned both parties to stop their bickering and govern the people in peace. And the merchants were also voicing their disapproval of Harvey's leadership, specifically criticizing Harvey's proposed tobacco policies and pushing hard for the king to prevent the colonists from trading directly with foreign nations. In response, the king created a commission to see what English policies would best encourage Virginia's success. They were to figure out what commodities were being produced, what should be, and how best to advance the colony, and attract settlers. The commission was a good blend of people, but a disproportionate number had been members of the Sands-Southampton, Virginia Company fashion. George Sands, Nicholas Ferrer, John Wollstenholme, Francis Wyatt, and others. This became the biggest attempt yet to push for a reconstitution of the Virginia Company, and they wanted that company to span the area granted under the original charter, meaning they wanted the Dutch and Swedes out of the region and for Baltimore's grant application to be refused. Finally, they wanted Virginia and company officials to be paid out of the king's customs duties. This request was rejected for a multitude of reasons, but mostly boiling down to the fact that, one, Virginia was doing better under royal control, two, that the king actually profited from the colony under royal control, and three, that at this point it was just as unnecessary as having a company take over governance of Ireland." They also noted that Virginia Company leaders had engaged in some pretty extreme political agitation, and that that had been in a less in a less volatile political situation than King Charles was now facing. The decision was a no-brainer, but when the idea was rejected, George Sands asked to be put at the head of the Privy Council's commission to govern Virginia and other plantations. This was after months of bickering over the Charter and over Maryland and with New England, and the king didn't want conflict in either region to continue, so he rejected the request and put future Archbishop Laud in charge. Still, disputes about Maryland and the Virginia Company continued in the background of all Virginia history for the next few years. And back in the colony, Harvey and the council ended the year by signing an agreement to work in harmony and mend their discontent. They had been ordered to by the Privy Council, and it was also very much in the Matthews faction's interest to minimize bickering within Virginia while their London allies worked to prevent Lord Baltimore from getting a charter for Maryland. And with the truce, Harvey might actually be able to implement some of his ideas and the orders he'd received from London. Harvey accepted their interpretation of his commission, though he kept asking the king to give him tangible authority and pay him his salary, though he was unsuccessful at getting either. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week!